0: The last thing we mentioned was that castle of Gumdan. You see, the point is that the people were very vain and wicked at that time. The prophet warned them and they paid no attention. And then the earthquake came and the, and the great house, the proud house fell and all the people in it. Oh incidentally, well I didn't bring it on, the, the ancient city I showed you, the one on top of the mound of the ruins and, that is a ghost town, uh, that was Seba. That was Sheba. That's where the Queen of Sheba came from who came to visit Solomon and outwitted him on many points and taught him a lesson. That was Queen Bilkis. and uh, So that takes up these buildings way back before the time of, uh, of Lehi. And moreover they're in the very area in which you went to, South Arabia, Southwestern Arabia. That's where, they, that's where you find those structures, nowhere else. Oh, except Babylon. Babylonia then, oh, I'm wrong because we have Egyptian models from the Old Kingdom showing houses of that type. In the ancient world, they were not uncommon. And they still are today, as a matter of fact. Well, now let me see. We're in we were noting that chapter ten deals with the Jews. And chapter eleven does something else. Chapter twelve deals with the New World version, and Chapter 13 with the Gentiles and the whole world, the New World, that is Israel and the New World, the Book of Mormon people, is that chapter 12 and chapter 13, the Gentiles, and it takes the world view. But now we get that 11th chapter, and that, as we noticed, is a sort of, a sort of uh, other dimension. It removes the veil, it, it gives us a, a brief glimpse of another, no, another universe of discourse, some place where everything is very different, it occurred to me this morning that every speech in the Book of Mormon, and there are many, every speech in the Book of Mormon is passionate. It's a passionate speech. There's nothing that isn't. The Book of Mormon is trying all out to get through to us. You see, After all, it was hand-delivered by an angel. Well, you see, that's a hard one to take. All right, look into the Book, and then decide something or other. What does this reflect? This isn't just a faded negative or something like that. This is a series of brilliant little vignettes that, in which we can look right through like into an Easter peep show. We can look through and see a world of long ago, but it's a very well-documented world. Now we have, it's, it's ma- unmatched for contemporary literature now. So we can see, we can check on this and see what's going on. When Joseph gives us these pictures of things that were going on, well, there's something extra here, and when the Book of Woman passion wants to get through to us, it keeps saying, "This is for you, and you'd better pay attention, and you haven't got much time." So, in this one, they say we had come uh, down with the last, wasn't it? Oh, yes, we enter. We we come to, to twelve, the new version, and. Uh, because we have to move along. Now this is the new world, you know. I looked and beheld the land of promise. That's the first verse. This takes us to that other one. And of course now you expect the happy land. It's the land of promise. We've seen, we have, remember Nephi and uh, Lehi said, I have obtained a land of promise, promise when he was still in, just after he left Jerusalem. But what picture do we see? The next verse immediately throws cold water on all our hopes for the rosy world, um, land of promise. And he saw multitudes gathered together, and I beheld wars and great slaughter among my people. Is this the promised land? Is this the place of security? There were many generations, it goes right on, many generations pass. Do they settle down to a blissful existence, alawato? Oh no. Many generations of wars and contentions in the land. I beheld many cities, didn't number them, came to pass that I saw, there was just a list issued, wasn't there? it? Was, uh, A list of 75 cities in the United States, more than half a million people in. Uh, And more cities than that larger than Salt Lake. They're numerous, believe me. Too many cities. That's the trouble today. Well then it goes on and we get a mist of darkness. Could this be pollution? Could it be nuclear winter? Could it be anything? But it is a depressing picture. Notice the next verse. It's a mist of darkness. And of course this is the great destruction that took place at the time of the crucifixion. And earthquakes and mountains tumbling and cities sunk and burned with fire and many did tumble. We That's described in another part of the Book of Mormon. We get to that, ever do, of course. Uh, but again, it's an, a very accurate earth, uh, description of a scale eight on the Richter scale earthquake, and all the details, all the things that happened. We don't go into that now, but this is what he saw. This is the picture at that time. And then he saw a vapor of darkness that it passed from the face of the earth. And then he saw multitudes, this, after the mist of darkness, you get this vapor of darkness. What's a vapor? It's a mixture of dust and uh, n- nuclear particles, if you will, and uh, of course, cloud, mist, rain, and so forth, if it's nuclear winter, whatever it is. It's a vapor of darkness. It passed from the face of the earth, and then you saw multitudes fallen. When, they, when, that, when the cloud cleared, everybody was just lying there, fallen because of the terrible judgments of the Lord. That may be a later episode than verse 4, you see, which describes the great earthquakes the time of Christ, and then it came to pass that after these things, then he sees another such occasion in which he sees a vapor of darkness, and when that passes away he sees everybody, well, pretty sick. Uh, then the heavens opened and the Lamb of God, and the Holy Ghost falling on twelve others, and the disciples of the Lamb. Now he talks about the twelve apostles, so this is the time of the Nephites that he's uh, discussing here. The, uh, Well, the Jews had the twelve apostles. Remember, they're the twelve apostles. They're never called apostles in the Book of Mormon, and he explains here now. Notice in the next verse, he calls them twelve ministers. Because the apostles, were told, shall judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, oh, do you duplicate them then over here? No, they're never called apostles here. They're called disciples. And you saw in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had to have a council of twelve, and a presidency of three. The Jews already had that, you see. This was, this was part of the ancient order of things because they had 12 tribes and each tribe was re- represented in the temple and now the new temple scroll makes it very clear. Everything is done in the terms of 12 tribes and your presidency. And with uh, Moses, with Aaron and Hor, supporting his hands on either side. And so it happens, a very interesting work of, uh, of uh, good, uh, good enough. And good enough, the many-volume work on ancient Jewish symbols comes out. A very common feature of the earliest Jewish symbols now is uh, whenever the Lord comes, he's always accompanied by two Two others come with it. And in the 18th chapter of Genesis, you see, when the Lord appears, Abraham sees three men waiting in front of his tent, and he knew that was the one was the Lord. And he, he says, My Lord, you're not worth, I'm not worthy to have you here as my guest. But the Lord comes as three. But here are the twelve apostles. In other words, we have a pattern here that's being followed, not just once. And the twelve ministers of thy seed, you know. He sees the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Behold, they are, they are they who shall judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore, the twelve ministers of thy seed shall be judged of them. See, the twelve di- apostles shall judge the twelve ministers or disciples of the Nephites, shall be judged of them. For ye are of the house of Israel, so you're down in the list there too. These twelve ministers whom thou beholdest shall judge thy seed. And I looked, and three generations passed, and uh, these were made white with the blood of the land. But the fourth generation went bad. That's what we know happened now. In four or five thousand years of history here, including Jaredites, which are much older I believe than that, there are only four generations of righteousness, just three generations living in which the people were living as they should. Well, this is an amazing thing. How, how can it possibly be that out of all the inhabitants on the earth, only one little handful, and in all the period of time, only a generation or two would be fit? This is the oddest thing. I'm supposed to be getting something now on the atonement, and nobody knows anything about the atonement. It's very interesting. How is it possible? Well, you ask a simple question. How is it possible for everybody in the world to go around in complete ignorance of the fact that the earth is a sphere? They did. How can everybody in the world not know? <laughs> you see that uh, this is that we're in a in a galaxy, uh, uh, part of another innumerable galaxies that we're part of a system. And nobody knew that when I was a kid, as, as far as that goes. I mean, there are vitally important things that nobody in the world knows. Apparently, nobody misses them or something like that. The Lord doesn't seem to make them known. But don't be surprised if the gospel has very few takers. If it's only one of a city and two of a tribe, as the Lord told his apostles, that's all you'll get. All the, wor- the Lord does here is establish a cadre. That's what we have in the temple. You see, just people to do the work for all the rest of them. After all, the uh, baptism, the work that was revealed to John the Baptist, the work of baptism was primarily for the dead because the dead out who have been baptized, who have unbaptized dead out number the living a thousand to one. That's the work that has to be done for them. That's why the angel said to Zechariah, who is to become the father of John the Baptist, he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Fathers are already dead, and John the Baptist, his work is to baptize. And then he says, those who sit in darkness see a great light. And that's, that's the work that's going to deliver them, the work of uh, the preaching to the spirits in, in prison and so forth. And so we have here, there are the twelve and the three generations past, but I see uh, It's a weary and a sad story. I see nobody seems to catch on here. The Book of Mormon is sad. It begins on a sad note, it ends on a sad note, and we are in the middle, and yet it's the most joyful of documents. So you can balance, all the verses balance each other. As we noticed before, the apocalypse of bliss balances the the apocalypse of woe throughout. If it's bad, it's also good. We get more of the good part. We should one of these times. I guess it's the rainy weather that makes one feel gloomy, isn't it? But no. And then, here we are, the 15th verse. Note they're equally wicked here. The people of my seed gathered together in multitudes against the seed of my brethren. They were gathered together in battle. And if you read something here, like uh, say the ninth chapter of Moroni, you'll see they're absolutely equal. He says the one is just as bad as the other, unless perhaps the Nephites are a little worse because they they should be better, but they are worse. And we have that Mormon says the same thing. Behold the wickedness of the name among all the wickedness of the Nephites, uh, Lamanites, it is not so great as among my brethren. But remember what the Lord told the Enoch. He said, Behold, worlds without number have I created, and of all the workmanship of my hands, now this is a real shocker, there is not so much wickedness as among thy brethren. Now in worlds without number, this is number one, the worst. Well, this means we're in a real test. If we can pass this one, we shoot right ahead to the top. And that's, and that is really the, the impression that's given, that we don't have to that we've been building up to this final test. So that so much depends on it. See, it's win all or lose all on this one thing. Will you be able to behave yourself if you're given a great authority, and not start acting like Chinggis Khan because you're the head of a committee or something like that? Can you be trusted? you See, not just are you. We'll all be saved, but who will be safe? Who can be trusted, you see? That's what the Lord's going to find out here, and very few can be, you see. As soon as I say, section 121, in our sad experience, it's as soon as anyone gets a little authority, as he thinks, almost all men, it's in the nature of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they think, they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. So that's in our nature. Uh, in that way, it is the... Uh, I was thinking of, yes, I was thinking of, oh yes, uh, a, a Greek play, well there's a lot about that. But anyway, the, uh, so they're gathered together to battle, and then the fountain, he said it was filthy water, it, it represented the depths of hell, the mists, the mists of darkness, the temptations of the devil, and the broad roads on which they are lost, and of course the fear of everyone in the desert is getting lost, because it's a terrible place to get lost, and there's no way to find yourself, it's a horrible place. And uh, that's the one thing that they that everybody feared, because utterly waterless. Remember, it tells us where they turned east, and Joseph Smith said that it was the 19th parallel, and he says almost south east there, taking them to the empty quarter. The whole trip took eight years, uh, eight years of that, but because of the long stops. It says, for example, they must have spent about a year at the waters of Lemuel in the valley of, uh, the, the waters of uh, Laman in the, in the valley of Lemuel, or the other way around, uh, and notice, the large and spacious building—that's a gumdan, you see. It is the vain imaginations and pride of the children of men with their big party and their, par- their parting and their importance and so forth and so forth. It's interesting. This is all allegory, but it has a physical embodiment. See, this isn't all just allegory; just a symbol of something, and to be taken as an abstract and to be understood spiritually. The uh, incidentally, which is more specific: what is scientific or what is spiritual? which is, you think of spirit as not being more actual, more real. We say science, but that's not so. A scientific test, you see, is, is physical and it's tangible, but it's second-hand. You can only interpret it second-hand. It depends on your interpretation. Say, uh, a, uh, an atom chamber or a cyclotron, when the particle is cracked, little trails go off in all directions, but well, they don't mean anything until somebody interprets them. See, that's the first-hand information means nothing. It's second hand, you interpret it, and then, then you argue about what it means and so on, and it's so in all effects of gravity, whatever it is. But a spiritual experience is something that you feel in yourself, you experience it in yourself, so it's direct, you can't deny that. That's why you can't deny the Holy Ghost, That's, you can't get away with it. And when we say spiritual, it's the thing we never define at all, we never bother to define it because we use it a lot, we kick it around a lot. And we get away with murder because you say, well, this is a spiritual thing. We just observe it spiritually and so forth. No, you know what is spiritual, but the spiritual is the direct, is a direct experience. And these things that Nephi is talking about, that the Book of Mormon talks about, see, are the direct experience. I say all the speeches are passionate. They're trying to get into, in contact with you. That's why the Book of Mormon uh, feels so intimate. That It converts people without... Why they don't know why they're being reached is because every man who talks in there is not only speaking from the heart, but he's trying to reach somebody. He knows this is being directed to people in another time, in another place, and he's all out trying to reach it. So it reaches out, there's this feeling of warm intimacy in every passage in the Book of Mormon. It is not cold and abstract, it's not the history even of the Old Testament and so forth. It is, uh, you feel the urgency and you feel the, the personal concern, put it this way, Everybody who writes in the book is passionate because he has a personal concern for the person he's writing to, and that's you. If it comes into your hands, you have been blessed with that. So he's talking about this in the large and spacious building, and the pride of the children, and then that great and terrible gulf. Now there it is again, you see. That's a figure of speech, an image, nothing could better ex- describe it. There is a great and terrible gulf between two different ways of living. There, there's nothing in common with them at all. You can't preach it. There's this great gulf between them. And if you're on the one side, and very few people, the whole world is on one side now. I wonder if we can see anybody over on the other side calling to us. Uh, Clement, the oldest and first writer after the New Testament, Clement of Rome, the first, first in the epistle called First Clement, he compares himself and he's writing uh, right in the uh, beginning of the second, well no, he's writing about uh, 85 uh, to 95. A.D., he's writing in the first century, and he compares himself to a man who's standing out on a headland all alone, he says, and he sees a swimmer swimming out to sea and he says, you fool, come back before it's too late. He's talking about the church, he says. Uh, Too late, the time will come when it will be too late to repent, when you can't do it and uh, come back now. And of course all the apostolic fathers, all seven apostolic fathers, uh, have no hope at all they all ring down the curtain on the ancient church, but at a very early time. And that's a very important point, as we're going to come to very, very soon here, that the curtain was rung, rung down on the early church already in the, in the second century. The second century, instead of being the age of faith, is, is known as the age of heresy, because there were a hundred heresies. Everybody had his own church. Immediately it broke up when the apostles went away. Well, we may get to that in a minute, but let's go on here and see what's happening here. So this great and terrible gulf, and, while the angel spake these words, I saw that the seed of my brethren contend against my seed because of the pride of my seed, because of their seed. See, that's the promise again in the twenty-third and tw- second chapter, first Nephi two twenty-three. He says, "Remember, you have nothing to fear from Laman, Lamanites at all, as far as they go, as long as you behave yourself. They're there." to stir you up into remembrance. I want them breathing down your neck, and you'll never solve your question by fighting them. So he says, the seed of my brethren against my, because of the pride of my seed, they were the ones that brought it on themselves every time. You see. It came to pass, I beheld, I saw the people of the seed of my brethren had overcome my seed. Our side loses here. They're proud of their pride incidentally, And then they gather in multitudes and wars and rumors of wars among them, and I saw many generations pass away through the Lamanites, that mixed up the people that were left. They went right on fighting, as we're told in the Book of Mormon. It's one. It's and remember Mars, Moroni's last words. He says they're still fighting, and I have no idea when the fi- fighting, when the war will end. It's just going on indefinitely. They're fighting each other now. Behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief, and of course they did. Would God allow this in the Promised Land, I asked myself? They became a dark, loathsome, and filthy people in idleness. No, so they became that way. It wasn't a miraculous change overnight. It is never referred to in that sense. It's a cultural thing. We'll get much more on that, incidentally. Now, the 13th chapter is the story. The Book of Mormon, the panorama unfolds here. This is the worldwide view of it, the modern world. He beheld many nations and kingdoms. The nations and kingdoms, these are the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles, 13th chapter and 3rd verse. Among many nations are the foundation of a great church. Now what is this church? I just said that uh, the great Apostle came in the 2nd century, the scriptures were completely corrupted by then, and this is long before the Roman church became the leading church. The Roman church was very small potatoes at that time already, and uh, it wasn't until the 4th century that they take over. And, but you must not identify this just with the, with the Roman Catholic Church here. People do. It looks like uh, uh, simplistic. But there is a lot going on in the world that we don't know anything about. And that's what this chapter tells us all the way through. Don't oversimplify, or even don't try to figure it out as far as that goes. No. if you could see bes- behind the scenes in World War II, things that happened, if you're in a position to sneak, alou- sneak around and take sly peeks at this and at that, you would see there was so much more going on, and it wasn't at all the way I thought it would be. That wasn't what it was. You'd be amazed what was going on. Well, here's what's going on. It tells us here. And he beheld this great and abominable church. <coughs> now, Revelations 8 says the abomination is Babylon. That is anything, and then he describes it in chapter eight. The people that set their hearts on these things. I saw the gold and silver and silks and scarlets and five twinkling. In the book of Revelations, John describes this, and remember, he says the book he saw was John. Uh, the only person, John is the only New Testament character mentioned in the Book of Mormon, but. Uh, he describes these things in terms of a great department store. He goes down the departments, uh, the linens and the fine things and the slaves and everything is for sale and so forth. It's, it's quite a brilliant display and these are the things that make Babylon. And this is the great and the bono. And There was no, of course, there was no Roman church in the time of John when he wrote those things. And the, desi- the desires are these, of course, the fine twined linen. Well, but they all like that. All the high church people do as far as that goes, whether it's Greek or Armenian or, or Russian Orthodox or whether it's the Bakers, the Bakers are the Bakers, or Bob Shula that build their crystal palaces and things like this, you know. And the many harlots, well, they're all up to that, it would seem. So well, He's talking about this sort of thing. No, this is the vanity of the world. What we have here, you see, is a, uh, a complex. It's, it's an ecumenical thing, and it certainly is here. But just. To, to mention here the uh, well got Columbus here, but this is Columbus Day, so we can't pass him by, can we? No, uh, most desirable thing. And behold, the wrath of God is upon the seed of thy brethren. And what was that, Columbus? When the Europeans discovered America, that was the wrath of God. That's catching up with them now. And from then on, of course, it's the Indians go down and down and down until they reach absolute. Nadir, and then something happens to the Gentiles. It says, "But here we go." Came to pass that the angel, the eleventh verse, came unto me. Behold, the wrath of God upon the seed of thy brethren. Here, and I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles. He doesn't say a Gentile. He says a man among the Gentiles. The uh, years ago, uh, it was. I, I happened to be back east, and oh, uh, was the the. Was it the children's? No, it wasn't children's. Friend, it was the, uh, the old improvement era. They wanted an article on Columbus and Columbus Day, and uh, through a friend of mine, Lucian Goldsmith, I got to meet Madariaga, the great uh, Spanish authority on Columbus. And then at Harvard there was uh, Samuel Eliot Morrison, who wrote his great book. Admiral of the Ocean Sea in which he's a yachtsman you see and he gives a very careful nautical study of every aspect, everything that's available on Columbus. So I say this being October the 12th, Columbus Day, when at two o'clock in the morning of a very bright clear night with a brilliant moon and the sea high but a, a good following wind, brisk, a glorious picture, a sailor in the mast sighted either Saint Kit or uh, San Salvador, they call it various names, the outmost island in the Caribbean, and America was discovered. And this was the stroke of doom, the wrath of God upon the seed of thy brethren. This man among the Gentiles, he cl- now, well I said, uh, to go on, I had uh, uh, lunch with him, and has always believed that, uh, that Columbus was a Jew. For various reasons. I mean, he keeps a journal, you see, and he, he knows all the mysteries of the Kabbalah. And he uh, always dates things by the second house. Now, who, and the only Jews speak of the temple as the, the bait, you see, the house of God. The second house would be the temple, of course, that stood at the time of Christ. Only he, a Jew would date it by, call it the second house, or date things by the fall of the, the temple. Now, his passion was to rebuild Jerusalem, and the reason he wanted the money. From the Indies was to rebuild the temple. That was his project. And uh, that's why he wanted the gold. And uh, he, what's more, he postponed the date of his sailing down the Tagus there until <coughs> his ships, his three ships, headed the Armada of Jews fleeing from Spain. See, in 1492, Isabella and, and uh, Ferdinand and Isabella banished the Jews from Spain. No Jews were to be left there. They they started out the biggest thing was one big armada. They fled to various places in Europe, mostly the Netherlands to Russia and so forth, Sephardic Ashkenazi and so forth. And uh, the big armada, Columbus postponed his going so that his ships could lead the parade of Jews back to the Holy Land. He wanted to lead them back to the Temple. It's a very interesting thing we have here. And what's more, his trip was a miracle of navigation and speed. His, uh, his friend De Castro, who is the best source for his life, beside his own, his friend De Castro said he was as sure of finding, what, of finding what he was after as if he had it in his pocket. He never had the slightest doubt for a moment. Moreover, he crossed the ocean faster than I did twice, once in a Liberty ship and once in an old German freighter, when it took me over 30 days to cross the Atlantic. He did better than that something like 28. He moved with uh, amazing skill at navigation. That's what uh, what Morrison tells us about. And the speed of the ships, I say, was as good as a slow old freighter today. And he went right along and hit it right on the button, just as if he had it in his pockets, I say. So this thing, it was as if it had all been planned. And so it had to do with the redemption of Israel. But no, they were to wait. Israel was not to be redeemed. The temple was not to be rebuilt at this time. They have to wait a long time now, and this was something else. The Spirit of God wrought upon the Gentiles and they went out of captivity. Now here's another argument you see. He's talking apparently about the Pilgrim Fathers that went out of captivity, and the the captivity was religious. They wanted religious freedom. But they weren't escaping from the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) They were escaping from other groups. They were escaping, of course, from the uh, 39 Articles of the Church of England uh, and Calvinist stringency. I used to, on a mission, I worked among the Roman Catholic villages and Lutheran villages and, and Calvinistic villages. Calvinist villages were in the Rhine Plain, and the, uh, the others were in the, most of the Catholics were in the forest, in the Black Forest, uh, in the Odenwald, and the Lutheran were mixed in between. Well, the best converts were from the Catholic villages, and then the Lutheran were good, but they. The Calvinists, they were fiends. I mean, they still, after all these years, boy, they were harder to talk to than anybody else. So you don't talk about any one church here or anything like that. Uh, there'll be other indications here of what we're talking about, because it talks a lot about that here. It dwells on that, you see, this, this type of church. But anyway, we go on. The Spirit of the Lord was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper and obtain the land of their inheritance. They were white, exceedingly fair, and so forth. and. They humbled themselves, and beheld their mother Gentiles were gathered together on the waters to battle against them. Well, why would the righteous mother Gentiles want to battle against them? We're not talking about righteousness here, but again, the mother Gentiles, we're not talking about just the, the English settlers either, remember? The French and the Spanish, the yeah. French and Indian wars and the Spanish wars, and uh, all the wars of succession in Europe had their reflections in this this continent, they were fighting, remember George Washington had to uh, fight both the French and, and the British. and. Uh, the wrath of God was upon all those that came against them to battle. They were delivered by the power of God. And they did prosper in the land. And a book was carried forth among them. And this was the Bible. Notice, well, they'd already had that, but notice the 22nd verse. Behold, it proceedeth from the mouth of a Jew. And I, and Nephi, beheld it. It had the covenants of the Lord. See, this is the New Testament, but they, have all the, they had the Old Testament. Now, this is the new one from the mouth of the Jew. And also, remember, the how do you best describe the New Testament? Well, I... There's the words of the Savior, of course. Oh, they're more than that, you see. We have the the epistles of the apostles, we have the acts of the apostles, we have the revelations, so forth. They were all Jews. It comes forth from a Jewish source, the whole thing. And the, after all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by those men and they say that they are the authors, you see. They claim to be, this is, this is the writing of Mark and I, Mark, I, John, and so forth. And so the, uh, which contains the covenants of the Lord and also containeth, many of the prophecies of the Holy Prophets, and a record like the engravings that are on the plate of brass. (coughs) In other words, it's the Bible. Their Bible, their Old Testament, isn't the same as Lehi's Old Testament, and that's why, because there have been many changes, but it says much like it, along with the the Old and New Testament. In other words, it's the Bible. And it contained, when it came forth from the mouth of a Jew, it contained the plainness of the gospel, whom the twelve apostles bear record. Now that was plain, but it didn't. Take very long, as soon as it went forth, after they go forth, 26th verse, by the hand of the twelve apostles, from the Jews to the Gentiles, thou seest the foundation of a great and abominable church. they have taken away from the gospel the Lamb of the Lamb, many parts which are plain and precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. Now those were taken away long before the Roman Catholic Church took over again, you see in the fourth century. When were they taken away? Oh, in the terrible squabbles of the second and third century, they just fought it out. Blood and everything else, uh, culminating, you see, in the Council of Nicaea in 325, when the Emperor had to call it because the Christians, everybody was killing everybody else. Well we've written a lot about that, we don't need to follow up that here. But there's what's happening, and then, uh, well you'd say it started, say, with Alexander and Philo, the University of Alexandria, the professors started fighting. They preempted the Gospels and the Bible, they took it to themselves, remember Lehi's day, only nobody had the book and now everybody has it, and they're all fighting about it. and. Uh, they corrupt it, of course they do. Everybody interprets it their own way, but especially, beginning with Philo at the time of Christ, they interpret everything allegorically. None of this is to be taken literally. It's all spiritual. It all is an allegorical and philosophical sense. So they fought about that, and this is the corruption we're talking about. And they lost the main the main treasures of the, of the book here. Uh, so we have necessarily, I say, an ecumenical composite. All have the same teachings and practice. Now this is interesting. When you say there are but two churches, you're right. There are just two, that, two doctrines and two organizations organized accordingly, and two sets of ordinances and the like, because all the other churches have the same practices. They all preach that God is a mystery and unknowable, the mystery of the Trinity. They all do not accept the literal resurrection. They believe that the Jews are out, that the temple will never be built. They have devised their own ordinances and their own ceremonies, because they can't get them out of the, of the Bible anywhere. And they have been borrowed from various sources, mostly from the old imperial cult of the Romans, but there are other sources. The standard work on the, that subject is Eisenhofer and Lechner, two Roman Catholic Germans who have written a big work on the source of, as the latest on the source of Catholic uh, ceremony and so forth, and it has three sources. The first is the imperial cult of Rome. Uh, the second is the, the rights of the, the German, Germanic races, the tribes in uh, the nations in, in Europe, especially at Aix-la-Chapelle at Aachen, from the court of, that's where the the most of the ceremonies actually came from the court of Aachen. and the third is from the tabernacle, from the Jews. Not from the synagogue, not from the temple, from the synagogue. And so this is where they get them, and they build up a new body of ritual and ordinance. And they have a new body of doctrine, but they all share them. They invent ceremonies, they all deny revelation. They're, cl- they're, they're sneaking up on it now, they're beginning to claim it, but they all deny revelation. So this is just one one world church, you might say, as far as that, and the ecumenical movement certainly would show that. It, it may be a good thing as far as that goes. So then, the uh, where are we now? He suffered the Gentiles to destroy the seed of brother. Yes, uh, oh, an exceedingly great number do stumble insomuch that Satan has great power over them because of the changes. Nevertheless, the Gentiles are lifted up above the other nations. And now here's the promise in the 30th verse here. Uh, Remember in 1830, the Indians were still the most numerous people on the continent. And they were still a big handful as far as that goes. But God will not suffer, the Gentiles will utterly destroy the mixture of thy seed among thy brethren. So Nephi's seed are mixed with his brethren, and the Gentiles do not destroy them. You can't just say pure Lamanite. there is no such a thing. You You can see that all the way through the Book of Mormon. Thy seed mixed with among thy brethren, neither will they suffer that the Gentiles shall destroy the seed of thy brethren, the Lamanites, you see, or your seed mixed with your brethren, the Nephites, others, remember. But the Gentiles are in an awful state of blindness. They don't get the point. Uh, They do not have it made in the Promised Land. Well, how far does their blindness go here? They've been kept back by the abominable Church whose formation now is seen. Wherefore, saith the Lamb of God, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles of the house of Israel. Uh, The one was the scourge of the other here. And then, well, the, the 34th verse here, He's smitten them by the Lehi's people. He's smitten them by the hand of the Gentiles. And after that, after they've taken over the land, the Gentiles stumble exceedingly because of the most plain and precious parts of the gospel of the Lamb, which have been kept back by the abominable church, the mother of harlots and so forth. They shall bring forth much of my gospel, will be plain and precious. Oh, incidentally, here's a very important uh, verse. I would refer you, to, second, ten, uh, second Nephi, ten and sixteen. This should. There's something up where it says, Wherefore, he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. See, it's not just one church. But whoever fights against Zion, whether he's Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male or female, makes no difference. They are they shall perish, and they are the whore of all the earth. For they who are not for me are against me. There's your principle of two churches. You see, you're either for you're against, and that's that. So the, uh, then, neither shall the Gentiles remain in that awful state of blindness. They've been kept back, as I say, the Gentiles of the house of Israel then. I will bring forth unto them much of my gospel which is plain and precious. Again, much of it, not the fullness, but much which is plain and precious. It's coming out. And after thy seed shall be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief. Notice how can you dwindle after you've been destroyed? Destrua means to break the structure down, to scatter. Destruah means to strew around. Destruah means scatter in all directions. And remember he says, and Jerusalem has been destroyed from time to time. And then it's been reorganized from time to time. That doesn't mean wiped out eternally and forever with every last person. To destroys, to scatters. Notice destroyed, in a, and also the seed of thy brethren, they will be destroyed too along with his. Behold, these things shall be hid up to come forth to the Gentiles. And of course that is the Book of Mormon. At that day, the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the remnant of Thy brethren, and also the Book of the Lamb, and comes forth from the mouth of Je- that it shall come forth from the Gentiles unto the remnant of the seed of Thy brethren. Well, the Gentiles will give the Bible back to the Indians and to the descendants of Nephi, I shouldn't say Indians. Thirty-eighth here. Now the 39th verse. After it had come forth, I beheld other books. Aha! There are other books. After. Book of Mormon here, and what do they do? They confirm it. I I would include Dead Sea Scrolls among these. From the Gentiles unto them, to the convincing of the Gentiles, and the remnant of the seed of thy brethren, and also the Jews who were scattered upon the face of the earth, that the records of the prophets and the twelve apostles of the Lamb are true. The later records prove the earlier ones, not the other way around, though they confirm each other, you see, because the later ones are discovered. Notice, I beheld other books which came forth. They're not uh, proofs. uh, Demonstrations or anything like that. They're revealed. They've been hidden. They come forth. Yes? It says the records, that the records of the 12 apostles are true. But we don't have all the records of the 12 apostles. Well, we have a few of the, apostles. well the records of the 12 apostles, There, the. We don't, of course. There'll be uh, among others. But we have the records of the 12 apostles in the uh, uh, in the New Testament. But also these, these records that come forth. See, now, for example, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Phyllis, Philip. Philip. There are 14 sayings of Jesus in the, in the Thomas which have been accepted and included in the new revised version of the Bible. And This wasn't discovered in the 1950s, you see, and yet, yet it's accepted as genuine sayings of Jesus that are coming forth. And, of course, one of the most important is the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, These are very important things come forth. No, this early Christian literature is coming out now, some of it's very old, and you can check and control it against each other and the like. And with the Book of Mormon to go by, you have a pretty good rule as far as this goes. But there will be others come forth. But as we said before, the Book of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were not popular with the Jews or with the Christians. See there, any more than the Book of Mormon is popular with anybody, as far as that goes. Nobody goes nuts over the Book of Mormon. Gaga, they should. Uh, and so, shall it establish the manuscripts are corrupt. You see, the texts of the New Testament are corrupt, and we, the manuscript has to be restored. And he shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and peoples. Now it gets universal. They must come, these records, he says in the forty one, they must come according to the words which shall be established. And the words of the Lamb shall be made known in the records of thy seed, that's your book of Mormon, you see, as well as in the records of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, wherefore they both shall be established in one. The time cometh that he shall manifest himself unto all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and after he has manifested himself to the Jews and unto the Gentiles, then he shall manifest himself to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. He first he came to the Jews during his mission in New Testament times, and then went forth to the Gentiles, and now it's, he's going to come to the Gentiles through the Book of Mormon, and then to the Jews, we suppose so. Well, you can interpret this various ways. If the Gentiles should hearken to that day, the 14th, no excuse, if they harden not their hearts, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father, and they shall be numbered among the house of Israel, and they shall be a blessed people upon a promised land forever. Well, that's the last thing most Gentiles want, to be numbered among them. Uh, in the ninth chapter, uh, ninth verse of the twelfth chapter, you know, you see the indication there that uh, where it says, yes, thou rememberest the twelve apostles? They are they who shall judge the twelve tribes of Israel, wherefore the twelve ministers of thy seed shall judge them. What we have here, we're all of the same house, but we're not in the same room, you see, when we say the house of Israel, because we're going to have Israel abroad and Israel here, not of the same house, they are twelve different tribes, and these tribes are quite distinct, remember that. Judah is just the fourth son, and the Jews are quite distinct from other tribes like Ephraim, and they're quite distinct from the Ishmaelites too, they're they're very much alike. and. What about the other tribes? Of course, we talk about the 10 tribes and they're coming back and so forth, a thing that greatly intrigued the Jews in the Middle Ages. But the the House of Israel, and it shall be a blessed people and a promised land forever. And then uh, now we have, the great pit which is digged for them by that great and abominable. You notice great and abominable church is not capitalized. It's not one particular institution. I would say that that may be significant that the brethren left it that way. And uh, uh, why this in this case? Uh, why, would you, why would you dig a pit? Well, the whole Christian world uh, has dug the pit there for the Jews and the Mormons and native peoples everywhere. They produce world wars, crusades, religious wars, the Crimea, World War II, and so forth, colonialism in the name of religion. These struggles, there are very few wars, you see, that don't have religion as their basis. After all, even our civil war, as far as that goes, because the Bible said you shouldn't have slaves and go forth. That was the issue that everybody got wrought up about. The Bible says, on the other hand, you see, you see, this other hand, the person, you shouldn't rob, you shouldn't take another man's property from him. slaves are property, it's a, it's a wicked thing to take them away. On the other hand, you shouldn't have slaves. Well, one of these, these conflicts. But such wars like the Crimean War was a purely religious war, and naturally the Crusades War, and World War II, the Austrian Empire, the great central powers against, uh, well, the, the land pirates against the sea pirates. But they're fighting each other all the time. See, France was a Catholic nation. Bavaria, Austria, they were Catholic nations. They fought each other. The Austrians and the Italians have always been fighting each other, and yet they are both Catholic. And so everybody fights everybody else in this world. And uh, they're all the same religion. But the Satan has it very well set up. That great pit which they have digged for the destruction of men shall be filled with those who dig it to their utter destruction. Now this means, does he mean this is spiritual destruction or physical? He says both, remember. Not the destruction of the soul, save it be casting into hell. Behold, he asked for an explanation, is the captivity of the devil, behold, the justice of God upon all those who will work wickedness and abominations. See his power. The great and abominable is not a label and a doctrine, it is the wickedness of Christian nations in this case, because it is referred to them. Notice these are the people that have the scripture all, they have the Bible. Uh, it proceeds forth from the mouth of the book. It's the book that's been corrupted. Well, only the, well, the, the Arabs talk about the Al-Kitab, the people of the book, which are the Jews, the Christians, and the Arabs. Their book, of course, is the Quran, which is based on, on the Bible as far as that goes. But it's something very different. It's for them. But uh, they go astray because of the precious things taken from the book. Well, that doesn't lead the Confucians astray. That doesn't lead the Hindus astray. That doesn't lead the, pe- the people of Zaire. Is it great Zimbabwe astray, or anything like that? When it says great in the Bible, you see what it's talking about, because that's the expression that John uses for the corrupted Christian world. And then he goes on, But if they repent, repent of what? Belonging to the wrong church? No. If they repent of their sins, they'll be forgiven, and whoso repenteth not must perish. But woe be unto the Gentiles, if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of the God, which, of course, they did after the Book of Mormon came and did against Joseph Smith. The time cometh, I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men now, either to the convincing them unto peace and life eternal, or the deliverance from the hardness of their hearts, again the great and yawning gulf between them, down into captivity and destruction, he said, Look, and behold the great and abominable Church, which is the mother of abomination, oh boy, he keeps rubbing it in, doesn't he? The mother of abomination, whose foundation is the devil. And he saith unto me, Behold, there are, save two churches, as we said before. Uh, and incidentally, the Roman Catholic Church has very limited cultural influence. When it reached its peak, uh, I would say, it would be uh, 1215, the Lateran Council held by Innocent III. Well, he was the most powerful of the, but That's when the church reached its maximum extent. But that was the same year, exactly 1215, when King John had to sign the Magna Carta. Uh, immediately found, remember, King John was the son of Henry II. It was Henry II who, who defied the church. He was the one who decided to install bishops. He broke the power of the Catholic Church in England and, until the affair with Becket. But then, after in, in 1104, he. 74, uh, excuse me. He did penance and whipped himself for a while, just as earlier before in, in 1070, uh, in the time of Gregory the Seventh, it was the powerful entry, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fourth of Germany, see, of the Holy Roman Empire. He went to Canossa and stood in the snow barefooted, while the haughty Gregory the Seventh stood in the balcony above him and looked down. He had won his victory over the emperor. He ruled the world. That's when the church reached its maximum. Extent. After that, it was Reformation took over. It was equal balance the Counter-Reformation, counterattack, Counter-Attack, but it's a very limited cultural influence. All up until the Middle Ages, by far the largest Christian church was the Nestorian Church in Asia. And after that, the whole East and all of Spain. At this time, 1215, Spain, all of Spain was Muslim. It wasn't Catholic at all. All of Southern France was, was, uh, was Catharian. And there were various kinds and, and the, the Vaudois and you know, there were, there were, uh, sects all over the place that were not dependent on Rome. It had a very limited cultural influence actually, and you see the, the Pope is a fine old man going around, uh, trying to get some unity and some reaction. Well, he has big crowds and so forth, but in the world of unbelievers we live in today, that's not a drop in the bucket as far as that goes. So, But again, we don't know what's going on. This is one thing we must remember. If I, I could a tale unfold of some of the snooping that I was doing, Unawares and unconsciously. Well, I found out too much. Uh, as the saying goes. Well, anyway, but this is an important thing, you see. Uh, but the name of Christianity uh, became co- completely corrupt here. They were all fighting each other. Well, anyway. And they came in for easy plans of salvation, and they rationalized on morality, and they devised ordinances, I say. They denied the resurrection, and they wouldn't have revelation. Well, that's all one church. They all believed exactly the same. That's why they can join together, and become one today. And they're all given to ceremonies because they didn't have the old ordinances. They had to fill them up with something to interest people. And the Church of the Lamb, notice its numbers were but a few in the 12th. It'd never get big. And the horse had upon many waters, well, you can sit on waters if you want. This is an expression you understand. Their dominions, but the church's dominions were small. Let's hope so. They did gather together upon the face of the earth when all the nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God. Again, what are we going to say of this? The power of the Lamb of God descended on the saints of the church, scattered upon all the face of the earth. So they're not all gathered in Zion, apparently. And they were armed with righteousness. That's the only thing to be armed with. And believe me, we're not armed with it now, are we? That's far from it. We're. We are armed with acquisitiveness and with great skill and managerial skill and things like that. That is not known as righteousness. At the great and abominable church there were wars and rumors of wars among all the nations and kindreds of the earth, and that's certainly what we're getting today, uh, at least 47 wars going on and rumors of wars. We get the news, among all the nations and kindreds, you notice the, the tribal, racial, ethnic disagreements, so many ethnic disagreements going on in the world. now. If you just go to the paper today, there are at least a dozen ethnic crises now, both within the Soviet Union, in Asia, the Far East, and everywhere. Everybody's breaking loose, everybody's fighting, everywhere. it's an amazing picture now. Just within the last two weeks, all of a sudden, all those nations have decided to, to become independent, whether, on the, whether they're on the North on the Baltic, or whether they're in the Caucasus, or whether they're in Turkey, wherever they are, everybody's decided to make trouble, and so we have wars and rumors of wars among all the nations and kindreds of the earth, and among the mother of abominations, the mother of harlots, he calls. And that day shall com- now, look, now commence preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants which he hath made. So that isn't the culmination when that comes, that just is, commences to lay the foundation, commences to prepare. Well, well. And then he sees the man in the white robe, one of the twelve apostles, and at the time the book proceeded out of the mouth notice the time the book proceeded out of the mouth of the jew the things were written were plain and pure at that time but that was only in the first century remember we have over 8000 manuscripts of the new testament no, no two of them alike and the oldest one is a third century there there may be a fragment of a verse or two from here or there and Naturally, if we find the old, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would probably be very much like what we have now, but all our documents are copies of copies of copies. Nearly all of them come from the eighth and ninth. The ones we treasure so are 4th century documents, the, the main ones, you see there, 30-odd um, 30, 30 documents go into the Cambridge edition of the New Testament. They have 30 different texts, 30 different readings for verses and so forth. But when it came out, it was plain and pure. But we know now from the many documents that it became corrupted very soon, as I say. So you can't blame one great and abominable church for doing it because that one didn't come along until quite a while later. And he was going to write some of these things plain and pure, but he was forbidden. We're not supposed to have that now. Why not? Notice the 26th verse, uh, 25th. The things which thou shalt see hereafter thou shalt not write. I told the Lamb of God, for the Lord God hath ordered ordained the apostle that he should write them, and the apostle's name was John, as I say, the only one that's named here. And so here we get a very interesting thing. It was written, sealed up to come forth in their purity. Sealed, they were hidden. And so we have the seventh section of the Doctrine and Covenants here. The most remarkable thing happens. Oops, I hope it's the seventh, yes. Notice, Revelation, given to the prophet Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery in Harmony, Pennsylvania, 1829. This is April 1829, a year before the church was founded. When they inquired through the Urim and Thumm as to whether John, the beloved disciple, tarried in the flesh or died. Now this revelation, what is it? It's a translated version of a record made on parchment by John. So he kept it on and he hid it up, hid it up by himself. Well, this is exactly what they did with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they hid them up. They hid them up in hundreds of caves, and John did the same thing. And I say they're on papyrus, as you know, but most of them are parchment. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you see, you notice they're sewn together. They're parchment. The scrolls nearly all parchment. And John wrote a scroll on parchment, and he hid it up. And Joseph Smith is now reading it. Well, he didn't have the scroll; he had it through the Urim and Thummim. And it was revealed to him, you see. But this is how John did it, sealing it up. And this is the yes, section. Oh, we're on the seventh section. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants, this is the introduction, yes. Uh, later version of the record made on parchment by John, unhidden up by himself. So when John made this account, he wrote it. Isn't it interesting? That it goes to the. It takes the pains to point out that he wrote it on parchment. In other words, it wasn't a spiritual document. He literally wrote it down and he hid it, just as the scrolls are hidden. He buried it on purpose, as this says here. He said, the apostle then, he should write them. Thou shalt not write them, but he shall write them. And others have seen, he has shown all things, they have written them up. Notice others have done the same. And they are sealed up to come forth in their purity. Now the only way you can preserve a document in its purity is to bury it. Because as soon as you start copying, you start making mistakes. It always happens, never when you mistake will you have a pure document, <coughs> as long as it's in the hands of men. So if you are going to preserve a document over hundreds of thousands of years, you've got to bear it, and that's the only way, so that nobody can lay hands on it. And this is what happens. They are buried and they are sealed, so they can't be changed and won't be dug up until the time of the Lord. Now Nephi says, I am forbidden that I should write the remainder of the things which I saw and heard. I have written but a small part of the things which I saw, and when I was carried away in the Spirit. And if all the things which I saw are not written, the things which I have written are true, and thus it is. So he's given us a lead, he's given us a start here, and he's given us some broad hints. You might say this whole 14th chapter is just a, a series of hints. And they're not to send us arguing in priesthood meeting and things like that. There's no point to that. You'll read them for yourself and so forth. But uh, he's given notice, he says he's cautious about it. He doesn't want to give us any more. The Lord forbid him to write any more. This is bad enough as it is, but these are things we're already perfectly aware of as far as that goes. So this is safe. He says, when he wants to write more, the Lord forbids them. He says, you write them. John, has all, John will write them, he says. He'll put them on parchment and he'll seal them, and others will write them and do the same thing and seal them to come forth in their purity. So we can look forth, uh, forward to more documents, I suppose. And now, well, I see the time is up now, and we haven't gotten very far, but uh, there's some other things to consider now. And oh, now we got to some really wonderful things. But this is the part. This is like walking through the sand here. This, this 13th and 14th verses. They they slow us down, especially if we uh, attempt simplistic interpretations. And if we attempt more sophisticated interpretations, we're in worse trouble than ever. Or don't try them. But the Lord has given this. He's I put in here what, what we would say is for the record. This is put down. Notice this whole thing is about recording, about John writing down, the Spirit speaking to him, and if I say, I can't write this, I would write a lot more and so forth. This all has to do with the record and the state of the record. And it's a confused state of things, the record, and it's a confused state of things today. But the Lord will clarify these things, and, uh, and you ask him for enlightenment, he'll give it to you as far as I can.